And hello, I'm Darren Kaser. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We have, as usual, an action-packed show for you today. First up, we're going to be ca- talking to Claire Malcolmson, who is with uh, the uh, Great uh, Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition. Uh, she is going to be talking to us about um, something that actually is not necessarily implied by the uh, name of the group, which, sorry, I should clarify now that I actually have in front of me my apologies, which is uh, she's the manager, rather, of the Campaign Fairness at the Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition. Um, so what we're going to be talking about is actually about where money for elections comes from, particularly but not l- specifically to uh, municipal politics. And what a little bit of what we're going to be talking about is specifically how people get elected and where that money comes from, which has a lot of influence on what actually gets done. I will let Claire get into the details on that, but uh, I'm very interested in having this conversation <clears throat> because uh, I've been watching a lot of uh, the Young Turks, uh, Stefan, and they've been doing a lot of stuff with about Wolf. Uh, which is a constitutional amendment to get money out of politics in the U.S. It's actually going incredibly well. So I'm very eager to talk to Claire about some Canadian reference points for that. Uh, And then also, uh, just a few minutes after our first break, we're going to have Chris Stevens, who's the executive director for the Ontario Sustainable Energy Association, uh, who's going to be talking to us about a couple of events that are coming up. Uh, One of them is early as tomorrow, if you're in the Toronto area, and then another one that's coming up soon that will actually be uh, in both Ontario and Alberta. uh, And we'll have that after the first music break. And then, as always, of course, we have Kevin Farmer working hard in the studio, who will be joining us at the very, very end for his weekly punditry roundup from Dr. Sustainable. Um, So without further ado, uh, I wonder if we have Claire on the line. We do. Excellent. Thank you for joining us, Claire. My pleasure. So we're talking a little bit. So when I uh, the first thing, I guess, was when I saw your... Uh, the original email, I said, you know, rescue Lake Simcoe. Okay, I think I know what this is about. And, and of course, I, I believe we've spoken a couple of times before. Um, but I'd forgotten, of course, with the influx of, you know, so many things in my in my inbox. I was I was initially confused when I saw something about election fairness. Um, so, you know, usually it is not it is not very typical for me to be speaking to people about campaign finance when we're when we're doing an environment show but you very cleanly and i think very appropriately connected these dots and and have a very appropriate campaign that does merge the two but they are two things that people don't always think of together so i would i would like you to just uh while you're sort of explaining exactly what it is that your position is and what this campaign is about just also please just add some context for the relation between these two things absolutely that's that's a perceptive intro thanks a lot um so our, our campaign, Campaign Fairness, we're asking candidates and voters in this October 27th municipal election to reject corporate and union donations to their municipal election campaigns in order to protect Ontario's green space and water quality. And you're, you're asking why. Well, uh, in short, it's a connection between planning and uh, decision-making and who gets elected and what the mechanisms are for getting people elected. Of course, uh, land use planning decisions impact on land and, of course, on water as well. So that's that's the context. Um, Anybody who's driven through or taken transit through southern Ontario knows that we're already really burdened with the environmental, social, and economic impacts of poorly planned growth. We've got tons of air and water pollution, gridlock. I mean, transit is a hot issue now. Uh, all of this relates back to, um, to planning and decision-making. So we need councils that are going to make communities better for their residents and for the environment. And so 
the connection for us at Lake Simcoe, which is, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, it's about an hour north of Toronto. The cities of Barrie, Newmarket, and Aurelia are the big ones that are that are in the Lake Simcoe Basin. It's a really big lake, uh, but it's not a great lake. And the population in the basin is about 350,000 people. It's going to be doubling by 2031. So we have a ton of development plans in the Lake Simcoe watershed. And um, and we know with business-as-usual practices in uh, in development and in, in land use, particularly uh, urban development, that a nutrient called phosphorus is added to water bodies. So that can be through airborne dust. You know, you go by a construction site, they're dusty. It can be through just erosion when you, when you dig up lands and you get more erosion. And then also once the thing is built, then you have lawns instead of whatever was there before. And so in many cases, that means that you have more fertilizer stuff running across the landscape and into the water. And what that does is then it contributes to algae blooms and excessive weed growth, and it makes it really uh, unpleasant for swimmers and boaters and in the near shore area, but it also is really an environmental problem. You have too much of this sort of fertilizer, of phosphorus or, or uh, nitrogen, then you end up with a lower level of oxygen in the water, and that's bad news for fish. They breathe through their gills, they need some oxygen. So. Uh, that is Lake Simcoe's environmental problem, and the growing source of phosphorus in the watershed is is um, from new development. So we need to make sure that that new development is as green and clean as possible, or else, you know, we're really in trouble. And it's it's a bit of a microcosm for other um, areas across southern Ontario. You know, every every body of water is a bit different, but any improvements we could make in that area in the Lake Simcoe Basin would be really helpful to apply in other places as well. So does that does that answer the kind of context question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, I, I wanted next actually to, to throw a couple numbers at you, which were um, very prominently uh, displayed in your material here. And I, th- I, I think... I was confused, actually, uh, or just undecided on my own whether or not I think people would be shocked by these. Because when I first read them, it, w- it was sort of interesting. I'll, sorry, I'll tease them in a. I'll tease them in a minute. I'll say what it was. But more importantly, w- when I read them, I at first I went, "Yeah, I'm not surprised by that." But then I sort of thought about it and went, "Wait a minute, that's kind of messed up that I'm not surprised <laughs> by that." Right. Like, We're also cynical. <laughs> yeah. Well, and okay. So let me just now that I've just sort of teased that, let me just uh-huh. say what the numbers are. So, seventy-eight percent of winning candidates uh, in uh, two thousand six study of Southern Ontario uh, were incumbents. Uh, those got those incumbents got three quarters of all corporate contributions. Neither of those things, I think, would shock most people. But where you really connect the dots is when you get to the third one, which was that seventy-five percent of the uh, contributions from corporations come from the development industry which totals 43% of total contributions. Now, we're talking about Southern Ontario here, but I'm, I would assume it would seem fair to me to say that this is not going to be super far off other places. Um, so what we effectively have here is we, you know, if you connect the dots and, and summarize, and of course it's, it's more complicated than this, but the, but the summary of it essentially amounts to we have development companies who have an, a, a, a tacit in, in interest in certain types of things that will create profits for them, having almost half of all influence on, you know, the money that goes into politics. Um, What sort of effect do you think this has? Do you you think that the the cynical view that this means that basically we don't really have a democracy, like those sorts of extreme, that sort of other end of the extreme position, is it really that bad? So it's, uh, I I wouldn't go to that 
end of the um, end of the spectrum. I, really, the the purpose of the work we're doing right now is to raise awareness about the numbers that we're talking about. The fact that the development industry has a really large impact on who wins municipal elections. Voters need to know that. They need to know uh, that just because a campaign is really well-funded doesn't mean that that candidate is necessarily a better candidate. So we really, ultimately, we want people to get to know what their candidate's platforms are and and make the best decision for them. Um, the The issue is that those candidates that get the support of the development industry are more likely than those who don't get the support of the development industry to win in elections. And again, that's probably not shocking to anybody, but it's a really important thing to know that, that statistically and, and factually that's true. It's based on um, the returns that all the candidates need to provide after about five months after the election. They need to provide to their municipality a list of everyone who made a donation over a hundred dollars. Um, so it's it's not something that candidate that um, sorry that voters know at the time that they're that they are make that they're casting their vote. So what we've done to try to raise awareness about this and help people make a decision um, that may be better informed is we've put together a poll. And we've polled 324 candidates in the Lake Simcoe watershed basin, and we've asked them only one question. And the question is, for this municipal election campaign, will you refuse donations from corporations and unions and accept only donations from individuals? And we've been at it for, I guess, about a month and a half now, and we have 62% of candidates responding, which is pretty good. And of those, 80% have said, yes, I will only accept donations from individuals. And then 13% have said, no, I will not make that pledge, and 7% are undecided. So we have almost now, almost half of all of the candidates who are running in this election in the, in the Lake Simcoe Basin agreeing that they're not going to take donations from um, corporations and unions. And I think that that's actually a really significant result. It means that half the people that are running see that there is um, a, a problem with this. I mean, I've talked to lots of candidates, and they say things like, oh, it's, it, you know, I, you, you, you either engage in, you know, feeling like you owe someone something, or even if you don't, which you know, for sure, lots of candidates don't promise anything with that $750 donation. Um, they are concerned about the public perception of being indebted to a donor. So, so that, so it's, um, yeah. So we're we're quite pleased with the the result, and we think it indicates that it is time to look at making a change. Um, I should note that this it's really not that radical. At the federal level, and at the city of Toronto, and in the provinces of Quebec, Manitoba, and Nova Scotia, donations to election campaigns from corporations and unions are already banned. So there's lots of precedent for making such a change. Um, this is just one step along the way to help educate people and um, and educate candidates about what's going on. 
So, Claire, I have uh, two possible challenges to that that I'd, I'd love to hear your responses for, or, or two, say, potential concerns, uh, and, and then we'll go ahead and let you uh, uh, let people know how to get plugged in with your uh, website and stuff like that. Uh, the first one uh, being was one that um, I'm, sure, I'm sure you've already thought of both of these and, and have responses ready. I'm sure it's not the first time you've heard, heard these concerns. But if we you know, remove a lot of the funding of where f- uh, political f- funds generally come from and we don't have a, say, a public system set up to replace that funding, does that not mean that you, even more so than before, can only be elected if you're wealthy? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> and I actually, I just am preparing, I just prepared a Q&A for... Uh, a press conference we're doing at Queen's Park on Wednesday, and that's that's one of the questions. We get asked that all the time. Um, yeah, this campaign is about trying to make it a more level playing field between different candidates, those who are attractive to corporations and those who are not. Um, if nobody can get corporate donations, then in some ways that does level the playing field, but as you point out, it also gives an advantage to wealthier candidates. So there are a number of suggestions um, that that people make about that. So one is you could lower the spending limit. Um, that would really just translate to less money spent on advertising. And it might end up um, that you have candidates who just spend more time in front of people and hearing what people's concerns are. So that would really be good democratically and in terms of their learning who they're who they want to represent. Um, another idea is that you could provide uh, a, a return to individual donors. I, I, I supported a friend in the city of Toronto who was running, and I got, I think it was half or three-quarters of my donation back from from the city. So that's a really great initiative that's been put in place in Markham and Ajax in Toronto, and there may be other places in Ontario that do that. That really does give an incentive to individuals to give, and it also helps improve um, individual participation in local politics, which we know could use a boost as well. So those are two. Those are two key things. You know, if the province would support such a program where they help refund individuals for their for their donations to candidates, that would be really helpful too. That would certainly help kind of level the playing field between um, between different municipalities. Uh, I, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, no, I think that's. I think that's a, an excellent question. I think a lot of people will be glad to hear that that it's part of sort of your campaign and that you guys are thinking about these questions. Um, we're running really tight on time, but I, I really want to ask you one last question. So I'm going to have to ask you for a brief answer, and mm-hmm. and maybe we'll have you back on another time to talk about it. But um, the the other concern, uh, of course, is that specifically here in Ontario, but it's it's nobody anywhere across this country is. Uh, not sort of aware of the back and forth of using unions as both a point of strength politically and also a point of demonization, mm-hmm. uh, both for, for various parties. Of course, you know, it's a, it would serve no point to me to pretend as if I wasn't talking about the NDP in many cases. That's both their strength internally, but also the, something upon which they are attacked from other parties, mostly the conservatives. But, um, you know, it's so it's a, po- a point of high contention. Uh, what sort of feedback have you had around um, do do people sort of agree that unions should be plugged out, and then can you? They seem to be so pervasive. Well, they're in, in other jurisdictions where a ban on donations from corporations is in place, they have to lump, they lump together unions as well, and that, that's why we have phrased our question that way. Um, I certainly am sympathetic to the view that unions have a different purpose than corporations and that they're 
um, yeah, they're they're run so differently, and they you know they they can't write checks to candidates in the same way that corporations would. So, um, but you know the union contributions to municipal election campaigns are really really small. They're only sort of two to four percent um, versus you know anywhere from twenty to eighty percent of other donations coming from corporations. So it's it, they don't have a really strong influence in municipal politics anymore anyway. Okay. Thanks so much, Claire. Uh, do you want to just uh, plug the website if people want to get involved or look at some of your materials? Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, it's campaignfairness.com, and we are, we're trying to broaden the reach of this campaign right now um, to help other people in other parts of Ontario uh, ask this question and raise the issue. So please check it out and stay tuned. And really great to talk to you. Thanks. Awesome. My pleasure. Of course, again, that was Claire Malcolmson, the manager of Campaign Fairness at the Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're going to go to our first music break. We'll be right back. Seems nicely planned out with human race. 
All right, and we're back. You're listening here to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or possibly one of our wonderful radio community syndicates anywhere across the country. We're sitting in studio now, which is a unique pleasure. We don't always, in, in fact, quite rarely do we get the, the pleasure of actually looking at our guests. Thanks for coming down to the studio, Chris Stevens. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Darren. Always great to be on. Uh, so you've been on a number of times. You're you're not quite beating Tim Nash, but you're 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 hot on his heels as far as the the most ever uh, uh, views on this show. Uh, it's always nice to speak to other members of the Center for Social Innovation family, of course. Um, but we're having you on today uh, specifically because there's two things that are coming up um, that uh, OSEA is involved with. Of course, uh, if you missed the intro at the beginning, uh, Chris is also the executive director of the Ontario Sustainable Energy Association. Uh, and the first one that's coming up is something called Green Energy Doors Open. Uh, and this involves a showcase, a public showcase of renewable energy products, uh, uh, projects rather, uh, in both Ontario and Alberta. And so I would like to start there, Chris, if you want to just tell us a little bit about that. Great. So uh, three years ago, we um, we thought, you know, we need to just showcase these amazing success stories of what people are doing to address climate change, how they're creating jobs in their local community, um, how they're saving energy and saving money. Uh, and uh, the first time we had about 33 events. This year, we've got 120 across Ontario and another 15 in Alberta. And I just found out yesterday that another group in uh, New York State has actually started doing a Green Energy Doors event as well. So they've got about eight or nine. And I'm talking to folks in Quebec. So next year, hopefully, we'll be spreading further and further across the rest of North America. Uh, and what it is is an opportunity for people to come by and see and hear firsthand from people who are taking action to address some of the challenges that are facing us. So it's everything from um, a green manufacturer, like down in Welland, Ontario, in the Niagara region. Um, Powerblade is working with Senvion, a turbine manufacturer, and they're giving tours and having a barbecue. Out near Kingston, there's a, a group that's um, climbing the turbine. Uh, there's also energy efficiency, green buildings, straw bale houses, all kinds of really, really cool and exciting stuff. And there's also some really great resources that we've pulled together. So you can find out details at greenenergydoorsopen.ca. Uh, there's a Google map. You can see where you are in the province. And if there's nothing in your backyard and you're doing cool stuff, then maybe next year, uh, the first Saturday of uh, October, you'll think about joining us too. So this was done through a <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, this was done through a partnership with Decentralized Energy Canada. Now I've I haven't spoken to them before, and uh, and I was not actually aware of that um, that group uh, or organization. Mm -hmm. Organization, um, yeah. So, but it is a topic that the, the the concept of decentralized energy is something that's one of my own personal hobby horses. So I'm I'm thrilled to death to the sound of it. Please explain. So uh, they used to be called Wade Canada, and they've recently changed their name to Decentralized Energy Canada. Uh, but they're actually one of 40 organizations that are working with us as partners. So last year uh, they supported us here in Ontario and some of their members that are doing combined heat and power or uh, involved in other sort of decentralized energy systems, which is part of what OCA advocates for too. Um, they uh, participated, and then um, earlier this year, they said, well, you know what, we could do this in Alberta. And we said, well, sure, we've got the platform. Let's just adapt it to uh, the Alberta context. And that's really what we're trying to do is enable and facilitate the spread of really good stories. Because at the end of the day, we're changing the narrative. We're t helping people really understand that this isn't about big companies necessarily, although they should be doing something too. But this is about each of us taking action as a conserver or as a generator of sustainable energy or a driver of a green, green clean vehicle um, or a pedestrian, cyclist, whatever. There's all these great actions that we can take to, to change the way that we do things and to improve our lives. 
So I'd like to call back to your conference that I was at earlier in the summer. We put, we recorded. Uh, I came down and I recorded a bunch of interviews with some of the the people that were at your uh, green energy uh, conference earlier in the very early in the summer. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It was in the spring. All Energy Canada. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was two things I want to ask you about that's relevant to sort of the conversation now. First one being um, was just that idea of going around and. People not really um, – so the, the thing I was thinking of was the plug-and-drive folks who I've actually – I've met at a number of uh, organi- uh, um, you know, green public events and, and stuff down at Dundas Square and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the, the reason I'm asking about that was that sort of just the idea that people don't really have uh, – it's like that old salesman thing. If you put something in somebody's hand, you're three-quarters of the way to selling it to them. Uh, and just that idea of, of – uh, with a correlation to this about – is is do you, is that sort of a big roadblock for people? Is that sort of why you're doing this? That you think people don't have a concept of what this is and they don't connect with it, but they do connect with oil because they know they need their car. And is that sort of the mindset here is to get them to touch it and feel it and realize this is something I like? Well, yeah, it really is a big part of it is that it's easier to show someone than to talk about it. Um, you know, some of us uh, who are in the sector, we do this stuff all the time. We're thinking about it. We're reading about it. We're seeing things. But, um, you know, my mom hasn't seen all of this stuff. So here's an opportunity for my mom to go out, see it firsthand, and then maybe take it home, talk about it with my dad, and take some actions. But more importantly, she also becomes an advocate, a champion that can go and talk to the local MPP or to the neighbor next door when she hears something that's going on that doesn't necessarily make sense. Well, suddenly she becomes empowered to to take on the challenge. And I don't have to do all the work because it really is, again, about all of us. Um, and at OSEA, our, our mission is really around let's create good jobs, resilient communities, and healthy environments. So more renewable energy helps achieve that end. And it's really about how do we power ourselves? How do we heat and cool ourselves? How do we move ourselves in a more sustainable way? So we've uh, we've been talking about on this program for years now about um, the Green Energy Act here in Ontario and its role in the renewable energy sector that we currently have. Um, I wanted to ask you about context with other uh, provinces, of course. So this you you now have a, a partnership with uh, Decentralized Energy Canada to hold some events in in Alberta, and we have some in the U.S. that are coming up. Um, how is this sort of expanding uh, the 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 renewable energy indri- uh, industry? Of course, you guys focus on, on Ontario, but are we seeing a market difference between Ontario and other provinces as a result of these sorts of policies? Or is it sort of flourishing anyway? Well, different provinces are doing different things, but the Green Energy Act was the first to really push the envelope. And then we saw Quebec do big procurements and incorporate community ownership into the requirements. Uh, Nova Scotia has done some really cool stuff too. Um, we're seeing Alberta starting to really pick up and opportunities, hence them coming on board to be part of Green Energy Doors Open. Um, so there's really fantastic things happening across, and we're all learning from each other. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes we forget there's lots of rhetoric out there, um, mostly because if the Green Energy Act is perceived to be successful, then one party might get voted in again. Um, so you see attacks that aren't necessarily always legitimate or based on facts. But you know we've created 42,000 jobs in the sector because of the Green Energy and Economy Act. It's rem- important to remember the economy piece because that's what it was about. $24 billion investment. There's companies like um, Sam, Sam, um, Samco... Uh, Samco Solar and uh, Polar Racking that were in the automotive manufacturing industry that were dying because the automotive sector was in decline, who now are exporting solar racking systems all over North America and sometimes overseas as well. So we've seen success, real success, uh, and we need to share those stories. Um, And even people within their company, their their wives may not know or their kids may not know what dad does um, or what mom does. But this is the opportunity to come and see it firsthand and uh, and get to know your neighbors and find out what you can do. 
So we uh, we here on the program announced recently that China overtook Germany. Uh, Germany is now the world's lead. Uh, is it installer or just total square footage or kilowatt hours? But they're now the, the world leader in in, in solar. Um, is this a trend where are we? You know, we're doing well, and it sounds like you know more and more the the, the curve keeps going up. Uh, it could be faster, though. I imagine how how much faster, how much bigger and, and faster could this go? Are we sort of operating at the at the industry's ability to expand at this point, or or is there a ceiling that could be lifted? I think things are picking up, and at the same time, um, you're seeing increased resistance too. So those that own the market share, they don't want to give it up to somebody else. Um, but in Ontario, just thinking about us, because we're a smaller, we're a bigger space, but a smaller population than China or, or Germany. Germany may be behind China, but you know, China's got a, a lot. More more people there too, right? Um, but in Ontario, we went from 1% of um, solar and wind projects being owned, less than 1% being owned by community members, to 17%, all because of the Green Energy Act. There's over 10,000 homes, churches, and schools that now have solar on their rooftops because of the MicroFit program. Over 8,000 farmers are producing electricity from the sun, from biogas, and from wind. So that sort of blows your mind, right? Because that did not exist in 2008 when we put this idea forward and we started advising the government and talking to people and taking their ideas on how could we do this? How could we train, uh, transform the sector? And those are all the great stories that we're trying to share. So, and, and that's another sort of uh, an, another angle to it. Is that you mentioned there the, the increased um, pushback, of course. You know, we've covered on this program a number of times. In fact, I interviewed somebody who put together a, a documentary about the dangers of wind turbines about a couple of years ago. Um, and at the time, I, I was less informed about it, so I was probably less challenging of that gentleman than I would be now. Um, but it is a narrative, and it's a narrative that keeps coming up. Can you talk a little bit about that pushback? Do you think it's... It's a matter of, uh, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you think it's a matter of um, just the fact that the sort of scare tactics are working? Do you think these are completely, you know, not actual real people and this is industry trying to sort of uh, fund confusion? Or do, or is this just generally that there's a there's a conversational barrier where you're not sort of connecting with people? These stories, the, the whole purpose of the event. Well, so first, we, we shouldn't be dismissive of anybody. We need to re actually listen and then try to figure out what the underlying issues are that are driving their narrative or why they've bought into it. Mm. Um, at the same time, we also have to recognize that by trying to just counter a negative narrative with facts, because you can point out the uh, the uh, inconsistencies, um, actually reinforces that negative narrative. You need to tell a different story in a better way. Mm. And that's really about getting local people to talk about what they're actually doing so that their neighbors can have a conversation with them rather than me in Toronto spreading ideas and, and, and advice. But if we look at what's really going on, there's some people with legitimate concerns um, because they may have not been consulted properly or they may have an issue with the project that's in their community. Um, but then there's the other group who just doesn't like change. And then around there, there's some political opportunists who are saying, hey, there's a, a constituency here who I can pull into my camp who will vote for me because I can then attack the other party or the other politician. So, you know, recognizing that there's really different agendas at play, but also who benefits from slowing things down, right? Who benefits? Where do the resources come from? These are all important questions for us to ask. So we need to hold um, those that are developing projects accountable and make sure that they're doing a great job. There's a great project uh, down um, in um, uh, Oxford County called the, that's a joint venture between a private developer and the Oxford Wind Co-op. It's going to be the largest community joint venture that's been established in Ontario. People can invest in this project. It's really, really cool. They're one of the, the groups that are doing an event during Green Energy Doors Open. 
that's how projects should get done because the whole community is behind them and is supportive. And uh, those are the sorts of things that we need to be looking at. If this is a problem, how do we fix it? How do we listen to people's concerns? And at the same time, how do we make sure that the other players are doing what the leaders are doing right? So we're, we're running down to the last few minutes here, and I, I want to make sure we have time to talk about um, the other events. So you, you mentioned, of course, again, that the sort of theme here has been talking about getting getting people to know to get their own story. So you're doing something very uh, interesting and special here in Toronto, which uh, I, I really hope is something that gets uh, exported to other places as well, which is the West Toronto Ride for Renewables. So you're going to be starting, uh, if you are, do happen to be in Toronto uh, tomorrow, which is, uh, if you're listening live, is Saturday, October the 4th uh, at noon. And if you're not listening live, well, you probably weren't in Toronto and couldn't come anyway so sorry we'll get you next time but that's the so you're starting at the steam whistle brewery and you're going to be uh touring around uh some renewable energy projects here in the city do you want to just tell us a little bit more for sure well so there's over 120 events across the province and in toronto and the gta there's probably 40 or 50 but one of the really interesting ones is the toronto ride for renewables and as you mentioned starts at steam whistle brewery and they're going to go around and see a number of the other host sites um around the city uh greenpeace is also doing the ice ride which um is all about talking about climate change stuff. Um, there's uh, also a real estate workshop where you can go find out how energy efficiency can improve the value of your home when you sell it uh, or when you're buying a house, which you need to be looking for. That's at the Center for Social Innovation down at 215 Spadina. There's a lot of other really great stuff. So take a look at the website, greenenergydoorsopen.ca, uh, and uh, you'll be able to find all kinds of details and some really cool infographics and other resources um, so that you can go check things out. And as I said, Next year, we'd love to have more people involved uh, so that we can get them telling their stories, too. Well, I'm, I'm going to do my best uh, to be joining down for the, the bike ride tomorrow. I never turn down a good bike ride on a, on a nice day, and I think it's going to be lovely. So please do come and join us if you're, uh, if you're going to be around uh, Toronto tomorrow. Um, if, if not, though, and if people – so, uh, you know, if it, please do go and try and find an event here. But just sort of as, as a last thing for you, uh, if people aren't available or they're not interested to come out to one of these sort of events, what would you support uh, – if you're sort of – you're not plugged in. As you said, you know, uh, people like us here who, who read this stuff a lot and, of course, uh, the folks over there, we're really plugged into this stuff. And we – we sort of swim in it every day. Um, I think it's really important to sort of think about people who, who this isn't on their radar and they don't have that context yet. And, and so for maybe somebody who's really new on, on this issue or is maybe more on the fence or maybe you know, doesn't have a lot of information, what, what would you suggest as a good place to start to sort of just get people beginning to plug in to maybe to, to start to want to have these conversations at a very base level? Well, so uh, OSEA actually does an energy drinks in partnership with Green Drinks every month here in Toronto. So that's one thing if you're in the GTA, you can come out and do a little bit of networking. Um, details are on our website website ontario-sea as in sustainable energy association.org so you can go there find out details we have a regular newsletter that comes out every month that has really cool articles about what's going on here in ontario but also around the world and how we can get more inspired as well as different events and networking pieces so um, subscribe to the newsletter it's free and uh, check out what's on our website there's tons of information Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. Again, that was Chris Stevens, uh, the Executive Director of the Ontario uh, Sustainable Energy Association, and we're going to have links to some of those events on the show post. Uh, so do check out greenmajority.ca uh, before you get home. Good thing to do. There's fun pictures of Stefan and I up there from the most recent events, so if nothing else, go and make fun of us for that. <laughs> we'll be right back after this music break. Sighing. 
news had just come over We had five years left to cry in News guy wept and told us Earth was really dying He cried so much his face was wet Then I knew he was not lying I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies I saw boys, toys, electric irons and TVs My brain hurt like a warehouse, it had no room to spare I had to cram so many things to store, everything in there And all the fat, skinny people
All right, we're back. We're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT. While we're listening, I'm talking apparently right now, we're going to go to our final section with the beloved Dr. Sustainable. Go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> hi, everyone. Just let me check my mic. Uh, uh, yeah, hi. Uh, okay, so I goofed last week, um, and uh, I, I encourage people to watch last Monday's episode of Power and Politics on, on CBC. Uh, and I, I had misunderstood a tweet from Evan Solomon. The previous Tuesday, he had sent out a tweet saying uh, four MPs on Monday's show e- to do essentially a, 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 a panel discussion on global warming. Uh, this was on Tuesday. He meant the Monday before that. He meant yesterday. <laughs> and I took it to mean the Monday that was coming up. And I encouraged people to watch a show that had already aired. Uh, so that's my mistake. And uh, the, the show is, is uh, it's, it's archived. You can stream it online. And But I thought... Um, what I would do for anyone who missed it as a result of me, I would just recap it because it's worth it's worth talking about. Uh, so the, the climate change climate change discussion uh, came up three times on the show. There was a, a panel discussion uh, with uh, with uh, not regular contributors to the show that are usually a combination of journalists and people who work for various sort of like uh, political strategy companies. Um, there was also a, 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 an MP discussion. And then there was an interview with Naomi Klein at the at the end of the show uh, regarding her her new book. This changes everything, and I forget the subtitle, but it's uh, capital cl- climate versus capitalism. So the the so it's worth watching uh, it, the the issues discussed three different times in three different places. So you might have to watch the whole two hours to get these these pieces. I, I'm just going to focus on uh, the the uh, the two power discuss- the two panel discussions. Sorry. Uh, so the the first one. Um, was uh, who did we have? We had well, the, we had the Harper Avatar, who this week was um, uh, Parliamentary Secretary Colin Kerry, and this seems to be a, a real a real thing lately. Is that we don't get MPs, we get Parliamentary Secretaries fielding all of these questions. Uh, the other the other participants were the uh, were Megan Leslie, the NDP Deputy Leader and Environment Critic. Uh, we had the Liberal Environment Critic John McKay, and because it was an environment. <clears throat> excuse me, an environment issue. They they extended a rare invitation to Elizabeth May. That seems to be the almost the only reason they ever include her on the show. Uh, so, uh, so the uh, Colin Carey trotted out really the, the same tired old talking points we've been listening to for years, and I, I'm just going to deal with them one at a time. So, it, it, they were they were focused on emissions, uh, Canada's emissions, and and routinely what we focus on is the emissions from the tar sands, and we're talking about the emissions generated by the extractive process from the tar sands. And admittedly, this is a very energy-intense process. It, it is the, the, the largest single source of emissions in Canada. It's the, source, the, largest, the fastest growing source of emissions in Canada. But it's not really the entire issue. What we need to worry about is that carbon that needs to stay in the ground. So it's not, when we talk about the emissions that are going to come from Canada, sure, we're responsible for the emissions we're, we're getting from extracting that tar sands. But we have a we have a responsibility for getting that carbon out of the ground as well and exporting it for other people to burn later. Uh, so so here's here's claim number one from from Colin Carey. Um, economic growth has been decoupled from greenhouse gas emissions. Now this is not true. Uh, it, there has been a decline in the rate of increase of greenhouse gas emissions, and and greenhouse gas emissions are growing more slowly than the economy is growing. That's a maybe perhaps a minor decoupling. It is not to say they have been decoupled. Uh, and, and to the extent that they are decoupling at all, we can thank the recession. <laughs> so the economic downturn drove down emissions. And it's a little ironic to hear a, uh, a representative of the conservative government trying to take 
uh, uh, or, or claim uh, uh, action on emissions due to an economic downturn when they're also claiming they're such great economic stewards. So, so take your pick. You can't have it both ways. They also claim that their sector-by-sector strategy of, of emissions regulations is working. Well, what strategy? We're still waiting for seven years for emissions, stra- uh, emissions regulations on the tar sands itself. Uh, and the other, uh, we've been waiting seven years, and, and the reason he said it's, when Evan Solomon asked him, why are we still waiting, he actually said it's premature to speculate on when those might be in place. <laughs> uh, and apparently, we're still waiting because it's just so important to get these right. Uh, and the, the other thing he touted was that our new, our, our new strict um, emission standards for the automobile sector. <clears throat> Again, this is, this is a ridiculous argument. The, Ontario, the Canadian automobile market is so fully integrated with the American market that we have no choice but to follow their standards. And that's what we're doing now. Uh, with 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 new new standards in the states that are part of uh, Barack Obama's latest round of initiatives, um, uh, he said that our emissions are lower than they would have been under the Liberals. So ten ten years later, we're we're saying we, we're we're a greater success than what we might have hypothetically had on a government that no longer exists. And if we if we're going to talk about a ten year timeline, let's talk about where we will be in ten years if we continue to do nothing. Uh, his other his other tired old talking point was we are not going to put in a job killing carbon tax that is going to affect Canadians and the price of everything. Newsflash, Mr. Kerry, so will global warming. Um, he claimed we have shown decisive action. I talked about this last week. Yes, we have been very active on sabotaging any and all possible efforts on uh, on, on this uh, on this issue. Uh, Canada, then, then this one, which always has me just banging my head against the nearest coffee table. <laughs> Canada is responsible for only 2% of global emissions. Uh, what other thing would we say? So that's the justification for an action. So why, aren't we, why are we not responsible for our 2% contribution to this problem? Why, why is that? You know, if we, you know only, only 2% of the, the – I, I just can't think of anything to compare that to. Like we're, we're, it, it, so, so fine, then we can, we can affect we can affect 2% of the problem. Sorry, I just want to jump in with a comparison there. If, if it was, this would be saying, so, well, you know, if we were talking about wrongful convictions, uh, for instance, and you're like, well, Canada is only 2% of the global population of wrongful convictions. Yeah, I'd like it to be zero. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just this weird thing that it's this false equivalency uh, that says, you know, it's too small to worry about. Um, and uh, I'll come back to this later. Elizabeth May had the best comment about that particular line. But the thing is, again and again and again, we're, we're not talking about the emissions uh, necessarily that, that we're emitting, you know, locally here within, within our sort of national boundaries. If we're also trying to become, the, you know, a, a Harper, Stephen Harper's uh, energy superpower in exporting dirty bitumen to other countries so they can burn it. it it's just ridiculous. And I'll come back to that later. So, so um, now I don't want to make fun of the other people here, but there's some comments that jumped out at me. Um, Megan Leslie... The NDP deputy leader and environment critic, she kind of wandered off topic, and and she was, I guess, she was trying to express a lot of enthusiasm about renewable energy, which is great. Um, but she ended up um, making this strange comment: we could look at things like how we could incorporate solar in the tar sands, maybe actually green the tar sands, <laughs> because <laughs> because of course that's possible. <laughs> It's entirely possible to just make that green. <laughs> There's really some way to do that. Uh, and, and, and the liberal environment critic, John McKay, and I know he takes it seriously. This is the man who was sh- uh, heckled 
in uh, a question period not so long ago by conservative MPs chanting global cooling when he asked a question about global warming. Uh, which, again, just so flies in the face of reason. It's just nonsense. Um, but he talked about uh, why Steve, he commented on Stephen Harper not attending the recent Leaders Summit, uh, Climate Summit in, in, uh, in New York. And he said one of, the, one of the things that would be a good reason for Stephen Harper to go is that he could talk about, he could talk to Barack Obama, who was there, about trade irritants uh, like Keystone XL. <laughs> so the reason to attend a climate summit is to, is to uh, uh, you know, talk to Barack Obama about reducing, you know, making some concessions on our emissions, our national emissions within our national boundaries, so we can go ahead with this Keystone XL pipeline and get that bitumen again outside our national boundaries, where they will account for other people's emissions. So, so that's a reason to go to this <laughs> this climate conference, uh, and. And Elizabeth May, she she had I think the greatest line about this. She she and I can only assume she was harking back to Colin Kerry's comment. She said, "We essentially we can be more than two percent of the solution, and we're doing more than two percent of the damage by obstructing international efforts." And uh, you know I don't want to. I'm, I'm sure they said. I'm sure these people, I don't know how thoroughly these people all grasp the issues. I mean, I know Elizabeth May gets all of this, and and I, I I'm quite certain John McKay does, and Megan Leslie. But I think this speaks to where the conversation is centered right now in Canadian politics. And, and, and the tar sands are just part of our conversation now. Like, we, we can't, there's no, even, even in an interview I read with Elizabeth May, she once said recently that we need to de- develop the tar sands uh, slowly and carefully. Uh, so there's really no anti-tar sands position in this country. Uh, and, and this is just another win for Stephen Harper, um, he has he has successfully uh, contextualized the, the tar sands in our international dialogue. And so here's my last point: um, in in the interview with Naomi Klein uh, with Evan Solomon at the end of the show, uh, she refers to them as the tar sands, and Evan Solomon picks up on this and says, you know, that's like even to call them the tar sands is a political statement. <laughs> so so for people who are confused about this, um, you know, for my entire life, going back 40 years now to public school geography class, the Alberta tar sands have been known as the Alberta tar sands. Not because environmentalists have been trying to make them sound bad and dirty, because that's just what they were called. Bitumen, the substance that is there, it's very thick and oily. It's, it's like peanut, it has the consistency of peanut butter. Anyway, it's, it, it, we always knew there was oil in there. Just no, it was inconceivable anyone would ever get around to extracting it. Um, so in the last couple of years, really good marketing campaigns from the funded by the carbon interests have success very very successfully rebranded the alberta tar sands as the oil sands now that's fine that's that's what they're paid to do what i what i what i uh what i'm against or what what bothers me is that all media all journalists have just just obediently fallen in line with this which means they're essentially just uncritically repeating corporate messaging now uh, uh, you know again we don't need to quibble about this term, but the point is they chose uh, oil sands because it plays well. It plays well to focus groups. Again, that's fine. That's their prerogative. But it, 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 is, it is a mistake, I think, from the point of view of journalists to just obediently start uh, parroting this corporate messaging. Uh, and recently, uh, Darren, you interviewed someone on this show who said, you know, we need to get past this arguing about what the name is. And maybe we do. But if, the, if, if we say, if we all just say, okay, we're going to stop arguing about the name and just agree to call it tar sands or oil sands, you're, you're kind of missing the point that you're agreeing to let a corporate uh, messaging campaign define the terms of the debate. 
And maybe we should get, maybe we need a better name. Maybe, you know, the bitumen sands would probably be more accurate. The unsustainable sands comes to mind. <laughs> the, uh, the global warming sands, the um, petrodollar sands, the Dutch disease sands for the, for the effect that it's all, all having on our economy. Uh, so, I mean, if, you've, if, you, if you're young or you've tuned into this discussion late, uh, you know, the, uh, it's, it's the tar sands, not because environmentalists are trying to message this, but, but, uh, but what the messaging you're getting is actually from, from the carbon lobby, and it, it's just been very, very successful. <laughs> if we went with petro sands, though, you may get some American right-wingers. petrodollar sands, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You may get some American right-wingers wanting to invade those, like Petrosands. That sounds like, you know, terrorists come from there. Um, no, and, and of course, we've, yeah, we've talked a lot about um, messaging, and I, I think that was a hard-won um, sort of battle on their, on their part because there was a lot of resistance. But I remember uh, maybe about two years ago, um, I, we, we covered a story where there was some sort of decree saying that, you know, people... Uh, it was officially by, you know, the government decreed that we will be calling them oil sands and they'll be sending notices or something. There was something ridiculous that I believe later got uh, retracted. But there was something like from the government saying we will send you a complaint letter if you publicly refer to them as the tar sands. So I remember calling the name of that when we put up the show post for that episode. I call it tar sands, tar sands, tar sands, tar sands, tar sands in all caps. <laughs> we never got a letter, but it was real. That really happened. Well, and, and Naomi Klein commented in the interview with Evan Solomon when he pointed that out. She said, I don't work for CBC. I can call it whatever I want, which I think is a really good point because it's entirely true. It's very obvious to me that uh, since that campaign, since those marketing cam- PR campaigns have come out, all corporate media has has just fallen in line obediently with this with this messaging, and they're just re, they're just repeating. And if you watch CBC uh, during the day or during the evening, man, you will lose track of how many ads you get from CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Uh, and you know, if you look at the CBC, our, our, our publicly funded national broadcaster, being systematically starved for funds, but ideologically by by the the Stephen Harper government registered trademark. Uh, and then you say we're going to make we're going to make our public broadcaster now be sort of like a ratings <laughs> compete with with corporate media for the most sensational thing. Like they're going to compete now for 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 ads and 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 then it, lo and behold, Cap is there to come along with all of this ad money to sort of you know make up their budget shortfall. And I just think you know when you're looking at a public institution like a state like a like a, a national broadcaster, uh, you know we, we we need to get them off that particular treadmill. All right. Well, we're out of time, unfortunately. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're out of time, unfortunately, but there are two things you can do. One of them, we just put up a, a new About Us video. So if you want to see that, there's a new video called What is the Green Majority? You can go check that out on our YouTube page. We've also been covering a lot of pipeline stuff on there, too. So if you haven't seen that before, go to greenmajority.ca. That, as well as the fall membership drive, is coming up in a couple of weeks. The week of the 20th to the 25th will be the fall membership drive here at the CIUT. So stay tuned for that. And other than that, folks, have a good green week. We'll see you all next week.